Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Good afternoon again. Um, of course, it's so nice to be here. I'll probably say that every day. Um, I miss so many of your faces. And um, I hope we can make good use of our three days together. I'm going to assume that everybody here has read the Thich Nhat Hanh version of the Diamond Sutra. So I'm going to unpack the Diamond Sutra. And also, I've made copies, Catalina's made copies, of um, Red Pine's translation of the Diamond Sutra. And that would be a really good thing to have in front of you. So I think Jen has the handouts here. And so if you don't have a handout, just put your hand up and Jen will find a way to get you a handout. Or Catalina will. One of the things you'll notice when you sit still, whether it's alone or with other people, although I always recommend you should sit a lot with other people. It's so great to sit with other people. And one of the things you'll notice is sometimes your mind, your attention will be very contracted and sometimes it will be expanded. Or sometimes your attention will be very unsettled. That's what I mean by contracted. When it's unsettled, everything's smaller. Everything's more narrow. And sometimes it'll feel very uh, expansive because your mind settles and you become aware of so much more than when you were just spinning in the same loops as before. So I'm going to suggest for the next few days that when you're sitting, just to be aware of this, how sometimes your attention settles and uh, there's a sense of expansion. It's so simple. And sometimes your attention's unsettled and there's a sense of contraction. And if you're a sensitive person, which you will be if you're also here for the mornings, uh, you can also feel this in your body. And this is a helpful thing to train in, to know when there's expansion and when there's contraction. And technique is really important. So that's why every day I'm going to add some breathing technique so that you can get a feel for how you use these practices to start to settle habits of attention so your attention's more balanced 
and spaciousness emerges. And why this is really important, which is what the Diamond Sutra that we're going to study is all about, is that you start to see that mental states, whatever the mental state is, is not inherently fixed. All mental states are changing. But when our attention's unsettled, we identify all mental states as fixed and who we are. So if we have an ideal that spiritual practice is about connecting with something larger than just ourselves, you need some technique to pull that off. You can't just read about it in a book. That's Subhuti's problem in the Diamond Sutra. He kind of knows, but he doesn't know. Like all of us, right? We know, and like we have no idea. <laughs> we have no idea. And we realize it's not that we have no idea, it's that we have no idea because we need more training. And what's the training we need? We need a training that balances attention. Balancing our attention is the diamond at the center of practice. If your attention is unstable, it's really hard to sustain your concentration. And it's really hard to forgive people. And it's really hard to be generous. Because when our attention's all over the place, we make a self. We create a self. This is what we're going to be studying. So that's one thing I want you to look out for in uh, meditation practice. The other thing is that you learn over time how as you start to settle your breathing and settle your attention, you see that it's not just that mental states are not inherently fixed. It's also, you also start to see how you can hold them lightly. You can hold them lightly. And this is even true for big emotions. You can make space for emotions to feel safe. They can exist and hold them lightly. Sometimes we have some emotions or some moods that show up and we don't know how to hold them. So we just like either try to make them go away or we like hold them in one way we always hold them. And then we can never really know them. And the last thing I'll suggest that um, we pay attention to when we're sitting is that, um, and this is the good news, because the other two things like, oh my God, you might hear that and think, oh my God, my life is a complete disaster. There's no hope. But here's the good news. The good news is that you can sculpt your attitude. You can change your attitude. And practice does change our attitude. Not just the attitude we have towards life in general, or the attitude we have to ourselves, but we start to cultivate an attitude in our physiology and in our psychology that's more consistent and more trustworthy. And other people can feel it, even when we can't see it. Some of us identify so much with our moods. Do you have that experience? But as we get quieter through practice, we start to realize our moods are not that interesting. 
Do you ever have that experience where you've like thought something over and over and over and after a while it's like, it's not that good, <laughs> right? It's like Downton Abbey is like this, <laughs> right? Like you get a few seasons into it and it's like, Mary is not married. And that's just the way it's gonna go. <laughs> so we need a practice that acts like a diamond and cuts through illusions and cuts through illusions, so we stop wasting time. And the Diamond Sutra focuses on three different illusions. The illusion of a self, the illusion of a self with a core, and the illusion of others. So the first one is the illusion that there's a self. Second one is the illusion that there is a core to that self that exists in space and time. And the third is that others exist. And although we won't get that far in our three days, there's one more illusion that, get, that gets unpacked towards the end of the text, which is the illusion of a lifespan, how long a lifespan is. So in Thich Nhat Hanh's description of the Diamond Sutra, he says, it's like splitting bamboo only the first part is difficult. Once we've made a crack, the whole length of the bamboo can split easily. Red Pine says, the Diamond Sutra may look like a book, but it's really the body of the Buddha. It's also your body, my body, and all possible bodies but it's a body with nothing inside and nothing outside. Nor is it just a construct of your mind. It's no mind. And so because it's no mind, there's room for compassion. Isn't that nice? So you think you're reading a text, but it's not a text, it's actually the Buddha's body. And once you think you know what that is, it, the Buddha's body is not the Buddha's body, it's your body. It's my body, but it's not the body that has anything inside it or outside of it. Do you get that? No, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> not, so we ha that's why we have to unpack this even more. So let me set the stage. Um, after he returned from his alms rounds, uh, which is going to door, door to door for your meal, which uh, is done in many Buddhist countries still, you go seven doors at a time. So you go with your alms bowl to seven doors so that you don't have preference for what kind of houses you go to. Uh, you get whatever is received, that's your food for the day. And then the next day you start at the eighth door and then you do seven more doors. And that's the practice. That's the exchange. And so the Buddha comes back from his alms rounds in one of the largest cities, Shravasti, in the ancient world. And he returns back to the grove where he's living with the monks called Jeddah's Grove. Um, which we're just, we should just call it Dufferin Grove. <laughs> Don't you think that would be better? There was a merchant in this town, Shravasti, named Sudatta. 
And he was generous in helping people who were in poverty. And so he was called Anatta Pindana. Anatta means uh, without expectation. And Pinda Dana, Dana is to give. So to give without any expectation. Do we have wealthy merchants in Toronto who are like this? They just give with no, no expectation? What's, is there like a well-known one? There must be a philanthropist in the city who like gives. Who? They're anonymous. Okay. John Tory? No? Okay, never mind. One day, one day, Sudata was um, so moved by hearing the Buddha teach that he wanted to give something to the Sangha in return. And he knew they needed a place to live, so he told them he was going to buy and give them a 200-acre um, grove two kilometers outside the city. So, so it's Dufferin Grove. Imagine a little bit bigger than Dufferin Grove or High Park or something. And John Tory comes one afternoon to this three-day intensive, and he's so moved, and he says, you know what? I want to give the Sangha something so they can practice more deeply, because this is so good for the city. So he, goes, so he says, I'm going to buy Dufferin Grove Park and give it to you guys as a place to practice, even though it's still open for everyone. Um, but the grove was owned by Prince Jeddah. And so uh, he had to buy the grove from Pr Prince Jeddah. So they had a meeting. And at the meeting, he explained what the Buddha was teaching. And Prince Jeddah was so moved by what the Buddha was teaching, he just gave the grove. That was it. Imagine that. Yeah. So, so if we just keep doing this, one day, we're going to get a grove <laughs> right in the heart of the city. It'd be amazing. Um, so the Buddha taught in this grove for 25 years. And um, after going to his hut to put away his robe that was patched together with all found uh, fabrics, um, he set down his purple stone bowl and then sat outside of his door for people to come around and gather and talk. So imagine this, sitting outside of his hut, all the students start gathering to talk. They kneel down, usually on one knee, they bow, and then they sit. And then a student named Subhuti stands up and asks the Buddha a question and says, how can somebody be a Buddha? Not a good question. How, how does one be a Buddha? And the Diamond Sutra is just an answer, a response to that question. That's what we're studying. So Subhuti asked this question, and this whole sutra is just a response to that question. In early Buddhism, the Buddha taught that the self that we cling to, everything like who we think we are, uh, doesn't actually exist independent of anything else. My understanding of that is this constant reminder that nothing belongs to me and mine. Nothing. 
this can be very difficult to practice. And so I encourage you to really try and breathe this teaching in that we're exploring together. Um, it's meant to be a liberating insight or vision, not a philosophy. Does everybody hear that? Not a philosophy. When we keep learning how to sit still, even when things are turbulent, we gain some self-confidence. We start gaining more trust in our bodies, more trust in breathing, and we start using less energy to defend ourselves against old emotions and uh, split off parts of ourselves. We learn how to trust something really deep. I think that marriages are like this too. If you make a very strong commitment to somebody, if you keep putting faith in that commitment, then you don't have to focus so much anymore on commitment because it's just inside you. And then your marriage can open up to become many different things. But if you have a lot of shakiness around your own deep intention in marriage, then the marriage will never be flexible because it doesn't have any roots. So it's the same thing with meditation practice. You have to spend a few years learning how to sit still when you really don't want to sit. Because it's the only way to start getting self-confidence. And then when you get this kind of self-confidence, some calming happens. And when the calming happens, you can start to look more clearly at how the self functions. Does that make sense? And then, instead of identifying just with the self, we start identifying with a bigger awareness. Because we usually just identify with like our problems and who we think we are and what we look like and aging and so on. But actually, when you start to stabilize that, you start identifying with something larger than just this. And you also start to see how a calm mind is portable. You can find it anytime. When you cultivate a good, strong, confident sense of self, then you don't have to keep building it anymore. In Buddhist practice, the teaching always works like this. We have students do practices to help strengthen their, their sense of self, and then we start pulling it away. We start pulling it away. The Buddha taught in early, in early practice, early Buddhism, that there are three aspects of the self we can drop. The first is possessiveness. My understanding of that is, this is mine. So the first part, the first kind of aspect of the self we can start to let go of is possessiveness. Does anybody suffer from this one? <laughs> the second area of the self we can shed is conceit. 
which is this is me. This is me. This is happening to me. And the third area of the self, which I think is where um, stillness really helps, is belief about what the self is. This is what I am. So anyways, that was all early Buddhism. And then the Buddha died. And after the Buddha's death, there was a meeting called the First Council. And in that meeting, his teachings were remembered, they were organized, and they were codified, mostly by monks. And then, over the next century, the teachings started, starting to, started to spread. And there were people who were unable to go to the First Council. It's kind of like Woodstock. Like, after a while, they just had to do it again. Because there were people who heard about how good it was, but they just couldn't be there. Or field trip, or whatever it's called this weekend that we're missing. And the second council was facilitated by somebody named Vashpa. So Vashpa was like the patriarch of the second council. And the second council is really interesting because it was made up of many more people than the first council and included monks, nuns, and lay people. So it wasn't just a male monastic community. It was much wider. And it was that stream of practice that started perfecting what's called the emptiness teachings or the wisdom teachings. So again, Early Buddhism, first council, the focus is not self. It's not me, it's not mine, we start letting go of the self. The Buddha didn't use the term emptiness very much. Then second council comes along, and instead of the no, no, no language, the teachings were now uh, the perfection of wisdom through seeing emptiness. Is this making sense? In other words, it's not just that the self doesn't exist. It's that everything is empty of what we think it is. Not just the self. Everything. Everything is empty of what you think it is. Does everybody hear that? It's not what you think it is. Key to successful relationships. Then these teachings were put down in poetry and prose from the second century BC to the third century of the Common Era. And the first version of one of these teachings was an 8,000 lined version called the Perfection of Wisdom. Then after that, there was an 18,000 version, a 25,000 version, and a 100,000 version, 100,000 line version. And then, centuries later, it contracted into a 4,000 version, a 2,500,000 line version, 700 lines, 500 lines, and finally into the Diamond Sutra, which is 300 lines in 32 chapters. That's one theory. Who knows? Um, 
Let me read you what Red Pine says. Are there any questions yet? Yeah. Why sit in houses? Why? I think it was a training so that you just get what you're given and you go to whatever, like there could be a nice place, a poor place, think about your neighborhood. So said it was just a, a nice enough number that you're going to get a bit of variety. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, not too little, not too much. Yeah, and also it's like seven in order, so that, um, you know, think about it. Let's say you're a young monk and you've just joined or whatever, and you still like have some greed. You'll be like, okay, I'm going to go do my alms in Rosedale. And you, you know, you take Leslieville. So this teaching is like, no, 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 we just do seven houses. Next seven houses. Oh, I was going to read Red Pine, but I don't remember what. Oh, yeah, there it is. Not long after I first read the Diamond Sutra 30 years ago, a fellow graduate student at Columbia translated it in less than a week. It remained a mystery to me. So he didn't get it at all. And then he goes um, to China. When I first arrived, the abbot said, when you hear someone strike the wooden mallet, it's time to eat. If you have any questions, just ask. Otherwise, you're on your own. <laughs> I never could come up with any questions, so mostly I read and slept and ate. But I also meditated several hours a day and took long walks in the hills, and every day after dinner while waiting for evening services to begin, I sat on the monastery steps reading the Diamond Sutra and the comments of 53 Zen masters. Sometimes I would just hold the book in my hands hoping its teaching would penetrate my skin and flow into my blood and awaken my sleeping dragon mind. But I only heard the dragon snoring. <laughs> Finally, after more than two years on the monastery steps, I sighed, packed my bags, put the sutra away, and turned to poetry. And for the next 20 years, my copy gathered dust until three years ago, I pulled it from my bookshelf and decided it was time once more. It turns out the sutra wasn't about emptiness, or at least it isn't emptiness that distinguishes the sutra. It's about bodies, beginning with the Buddha's body and ending with the body of every noble person who practices the teaching. Our real body is what ties all these words together. Isn't that beautiful? Don't we all have this with texts? Like you read a text, you read it, you read it, you read it, and you can't really penetrate it. Um, because it's not in your body yet. So when he says the text is really your body, what he's saying is the practice is about fully being in your body, not your conceptual body. Most of us, even if we do body practices, we live in a very conceptual body. 
we spend a lot of time wondering about what our body is doing inside. We spend a lot of time looking at what our body looks like outside. And then we spend a lot of time comparing because we have images from media, etc. What would it be like to just be in your body free of any notions of body? That's what's being articulated here. And this practice is called prajna, wisdom, paramita, to go beyond. So going beyond wisdom, vajra, diamond, chetaka, cutting. So you could say cutting through diamonds, the diamond that cuts through. You could say that wisdom is like a diamond because nothing cuts through wisdom. Wisdom cuts through. And also a diamond has some characteristics that are important to keep in mind as a, as a guiding image. One is a diamond has an ability to radiate light. Second, it's indestructible, right? So strong, at least back then they thought nothing could be stronger than a diamond. Third, its ability to cut. A diamond can cut anything. Nowadays, we have other things that can cut, but imagine this is 2,000 years ago. And the last characteristic of a diamond that I think is the most important is you can never see the whole thing at once. If you pick up a diamond, you can't ever see the whole diamond, just like your life. You can't ever see your life. You think you're looking at your life, but it turns out you're just looking at an aspect of the diamond. You can't ever see the whole thing at once. So one more quote about the text before we jump in. The fifth uh, patriarch of Zen, Chinese Zen, Hung Jen says, this sutra is present in the nature of all beings. Those who don't look within read only the words. While those who become aware of their own minds realize the sutra does not consist of words. Isn't that nice? Sutra doesn't consist of words. So, the text is made up of 300 lines, and it's in 32 chapters. For those of you that have studied Mahayana Buddhism, the number 32 is significant, because it's said that the Buddha's body had 32 characteristics. When they sculpted the Buddha's body, if you ever look at sculptures of the Buddha's body, the body has 32 characteristics. And sometimes when I teach meditation to teenagers, I teach them this list of 32 characteristics, and we try to act them out. Uh, kids have a lot of fun with this. So the first characteristic is the Buddha's feet were perfectly level. So if you look at his upturned feet in lotus, they're totally flat. If you keep practicing, all these things will happen to you. <laughs> the second is he has a thousand-spoked wheel tattooed on his feet. 
So if you're looking, like, what should the next tattoo be? I don't know what the next thing should be. I was going to get the Spirit Loft logo. <laughs> you could consider the wheel. He had long, slender fingers, very flexible hands and feet. His toes and fingers were webbed. He had full-size heels. This goes on and on. Do you want to hear more? Okay, this is one of my favorite ones. Thighs like a royal stag. <laughs> Wouldn't that be so good? Like imagine tomorrow morning, you're going to get espresso before you come to class, and you're like lined up, and someone comes up to you, and they're like, how's the workshop going? And you're like, pretty good. And they're like, I notice you have thighs like a royal stag. <laughs> and then you'd be like, thank you so much. Or maybe you're like friends with someone who puts lots of like photos of them on Instagram, themselves on Instagram, and you could just write under the photos, you're just like, thighs like a royal stag. <laughs> um, hands reaching below the knees. So I don't know if anyone here has that. Um, this is another great one, a well-retracted male organ. <laughs> So yeah, so tonight, if you go visit a friend who has a male organ, you could just say, you know, uh, the height and stretch of the arms are equal. Every hair root is the same color. Um, a golden-hued body, soft, smooth skin, um, body upright and erect, full round shoulders, 40 teeth, white teeth, four canine teeth, a jaw like a lion, saliva that improves the taste of food. <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? You could eat anywhere. You could go to a place where the food has no flavor like fresh or one of those places and get like one of those rice bowls or whatever and you're like oh this is great doesn't taste like anything and then you can like add more saliva because the the side is like four dollars for something to dip eyelashes like a royal bull a white urna curl that emits light between the eyebrows and a fleshy protuberance on the crown of the head Also known as a cyst, yeah. <laughs> Exposure to heavy metals. Yeah. Now, uh, just a little history here, because this is kind of interesting, is that some of you, if you've studied with me before, you know I like to tell a story about an interaction that happened between Bodhidharma, who, Bodhidharma was a sage in India, and he's the person responsible for bringing the teachings of the Buddha from India to China. And apparently he sailed to China from India on a reed. <laughs> it's like, it's like stand-up paddleboard kind of thing. <laughs> and anyways, he gets to China and he's met by the emperor of the province he went in, uh, Lian province. And the emperor says to Bodhidharma, what are the holy teachings that you're bringing? 
And Bodhidharma says, nothing. Or sometimes he says, nothing holy. Nothing holy. And confused, the emperor then says, well, then who are you? And Bodhidharma famously says, I don't know. Isn't that a beautiful story? Imagine that. Imagine you had interactions like this. You go to a party, you know, and someone's like, who are you? And you're just like, <laughs> I have no idea. Or, or this is how you start to relate to yourself. For 30 years, you've been like on the quest to find out who you are, and then you realize it's the wrong question. I have no idea. I have no idea. And so this is a famous text. Now it turns out that while the, the emperor was sold and the emperor starts investing all of his uh, fortune into building monasteries in China. And that's how the Buddha's teaching spread. Now an interesting detail that I didn't know until reading footnotes was that the emperor's son is the person who translated the Diamond Sutra and put it into these 32 chapters to resemble the 32 characteristic of the Buddha's body. And I think this is kind of ironic that the dad was like spending all these fortunes building monasteries and the son was basically um, creating texts on nothing, on emptiness. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? So um, should we start reading chapter one? Feel free to stretch your legs if you need to. That was a long introduction to Jeff. Chapter one. Thus have I heard. Once, the Bhagavan, Bhagavan is uh, uh, just a, um, uh, kind of like a code word for the Buddha, for Gotama. Uh, Bhaga is a vagina. And van means to bestow uh, prosperity. So one who bestows prosperity is Bhagavan. Um, once the Bhagavan was dwelling near Shravasti at Anathapindada's garden in Jetta Forest, you know all the references now, together with the full assembly of 1,250 monks and nuns, and a great many fearless bodhisattvas. One thing that's interesting in this text that you'll notice is that the word bodhisattva is always accompanied by the term fearless. Bodhisattva is someone who's put aside their own awakening because they realize that their awakening is bound up with the awakening of others. And they realize true awakening is always social. It's always social. And so in order to do that, you can't be scared. So that's why these terms always go together. Fearless Bodhisattva. One day before noon, the Bhagavan put on his patched robe and picked up his bowl and entered the capital of Shravasti for offerings. 
After begging for food in the city and eating his meal of rice, he returned from his daily round in the afternoon, put his robe and bowl away, washed his feet, and sat down on the appointed seat. After crossing his legs and adjusting his body, he turned his awareness to what was in front of him. A number of monks and nuns came to where he was sitting. After touching their head to his feet, they walked around him to the right three times and sat down to one side. So, chapter one. So simple. It's so easy to gloss over, but there's a lot of good details. So one is, um, there's nothing happening. Buddha's sitting down. And on the other hand, he's practicing. And what we're seeing is what the Buddha does. If you ever wonder, what does the Buddha do? This is what he does. He goes for alms rounds. He sits down. And when he sits down, he starts practicing mindfulness. When we meditate, when we practice mindfulness, we need to let go of our preoccupations. It's hard to settle your heart when you have a lot of preoccupations. If you have a lot of preoccupations, you have a pretty unsettled heart. When your attention is locked down, in rumination, you have an agitated heart. It's hard to settle down. It's hard to know yourself. If there's something important to think about during meditation practice, then come back to it after practice. But during practice, get to know what it's like to sit a little more deeply than just your preoccupation. So that's why when I say come back to the breath, you have to train in that. When you let go of preoccupations, you let go into something. You let go into something. And this is the paradox of practice, is you're controlling your body and your posture and the time you sit so that you can let go of control. So you can let go of your obsessions. Does that make sense a little bit? Mm -hmm. If you keep being mindful of what's happening in the present, this is what the Buddha is doing. He's sitting and he's giving attention to what's in, fr in front of him. He's being mindful of his breathing, of what's happening in the present. then what you're really doing is you're cultivating a field of practice. The Buddha never spoke about practice as revolving around a self. It's not a self that practices. It's not a self that gains or loses. Instead, the Buddha always talked about practice in terms of conditions, right? When you practice it, you're creating the conditions for something to emerge that wasn't there before. 
so that you can see and you can love more clearly. Think about that when you're a kid. When you're a kid and you aren't seen, it's akin to not being loved. So we're trying to see what's happening moment to moment. This is our practice. Without being in the driver's seat. So let me repeat this, because this, this is easy to miss. When you're practicing, your job is to create the conditions for something to emerge that wasn't there before. For trust to emerge, for peace to emerge, for stability to emerge. That's your practice. And so all you have to do is to keep focusing on coming back to the breath, keep the practice embodied, and then you create the conditions for a more peaceful, stable heart to begin to emerge. You don't have to be like on top of your practice. It's so different than like yoga practice. In yoga practice, like, we're reshaping things. So we're kind of on top of stuff all the time. And that's great. That's great. But it's also good to know how to not do that. How to sit still and sit upright and let go of control at the same time. And once that happens, practice just starts unfolding. Pablo Neruda has this beautiful poem where he says something like, um, even if you pick all the flowers, you can't stop spring. <laughs> and the Buddha has an idea that's similar to this, where in one of the suttas he talks about how, if I remember this, um, The, the, the practice is like a chick in an egg. Okay. And the job of the teacher is just to keep the egg safe and to poke at it sometimes. Okay. But um, eventually, once the process gets going, um, whether the chick wants to hatch or not, there's no control. In other words, like if you're the chick and you're the egg, the practice starts going, and whether you want the hatching to happen or not is not up to you anymore. And does everybody have that feeling of practice? Like once you get going after a while, it's like the practice is just going to start unfolding. And like you can't control it anymore. You're like, oh god, I don't want to hatch. I don't want to hatch. <laughs> this is my current theory about practice. It goes like this. Your practice is saying to you, open up and let go. And you're like, no, I can't, I can't. And then the practice is like, you can do it. Let go. Open up. And you're like, no, no, no. I can't do it. And then it's like, you can, you can. But after a while, it's like, you will, you will. <laughs> can I keep going? Is your attention still there? Let's just do this next section. A number of bhikshus came up to where the Bhagavan was sitting, and after touching their heads to his feet, they walked around them to the right three times and sat to one side. 
So they walked around him three times. Um, in India, uh, it's customary that when you wear robes, the right shoulder's not covered, and then you would walk around an altar or whatever you're walking around three times, uh, showing your right shoulder. Uh, but in China, um, it was colder. So both shoulders were covered, but they maintained this practice of walking around, uh, circumambulating three times. Um, and, uh, and then it would be customary to bow. And the bowing is really important. When you bow, um, the non-self that's you is bowing and recognizing the non-self that you're bowing to. And then it meets in the middle. So you don't bow like from your personality. Like, oh, I'm bowing. So good. I hope people see me bowing. If the non-self bows and the Buddha bows, then uh, there's good communication. That's what you're aiming for. So that's what you want to feel in your body. How could I bow in a way that's not coming from me? And that's a whole interesting exploration. And why would you train in that way? You train in that way so that then when you look at other people and you look at the suffering of other people, you don't see it as their suffering. You just see it as part of suffering. And when you look at your suffering and you're not scared to look at your suffering, you stop looking at it as your suffering. And you just look at it as suffering. A capital S, suffering. And then you stop getting angry at people because you just see their suffering. Or you get angry at people, but it's okay. And you just see it as their suffering, your suffering, just suffering happening. And then you don't keep suffering because of what someone did to you once. Because it is not their fault. Because really it's nobody's fault. Like if you bow to somebody who's hurt you, it means you're bowing to the no-self element. It means you're bowing to conditions. And then you see that the person you're bowing to comes from an ancestry of conditions. So if they ever did something that hurt you, even though you might be upset, it's not their fault that they did that. Yeah, they have to take responsibility. Maybe they have to go to prison even. But it's still not their fault. So if you're going to let go of all the things that you're holding on to as me, then you have to let go of all the ways you're making other people others. <laughs> so that means you have to stop finding fault. So how many of you live with somebody? Here's your homework. Okay, stop finding fault with your roommate. If somebody ever hit you with like something, let's say a hockey stick. Do anybody play hockey? Okay, if someone ever hits you with a hockey stick, 
it's not their fault. Like, the fault is the hockey stick. Like, it's the hockey stick that's at fault for hurting you. But they're not at fault. They were just acting out some stupid samskara that they internalized from their environment. So you shouldn't spend so much time faulting them. Is anybody here a lawyer? Yeah, they never come to these things. <laughs> Imagine if our legal system spent less time finding fault. Because like ultimately, so what? Think about this in your intimate relationships. Have you ever like decided, I'm just not going to find fault with them anymore? And the whole thing lightens up. The whole thing lightens up. Yeah. Everyone were able to practice this, it would make the concept of forgiveness obsolete. It would make, to some extent, what it, would, what it would change is that it would make you want them to suffer less. It would, it, we wouldn't want the people who've hurt us to keep suffering. That's what changes. Yeah. When we find fault, it's a little bit punishing, or a lot punishing. The Jungle Book, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know the baboon, and he whacks Simba over the head with the stick. Yeah. He's like, oh, what did you do that for? I yeah. like, doesn't matter, it's in the past. Mm -hmm. Right. That might be stretching it a little bit. <laughs> That's what you just said. Yeah. 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 So, I'm going to stop here, and then what I want to do is find out um, what Sabuti asks. Because now there's been this circling three times, there's been this bow. We know what Jetto's Grove is. Oh, this is how slow we're going to go <laughs> this weekend, yeah. Um, and then Sabuti is going to stand up in front of the whole Sangha and ask this question. We already know what the question is, which is how to be a Buddha. Um, but it's interesting how he asks it and how the Buddha responds. And that's what we're going to cover today. Does this sound reasonable? Okay. So um, let's take a little break. Um, Ten minutes? Does that sound reasonable? Okay. So 2.55, we'll come back. There's another